In American culture, a scandal really isn't considered a legit scandal until it gets the suffix gate connected to it. And in large part, this came because of the Watergate scandal in the 1970s during the Nixon administration. Beyond the four buildings in the Foggy Bottom area of Washington, D.C. called Watergate, Watergate as a term became indicative of a national and political scandal. It seems that in order for a, a scandal to really make the news or for it to be considered significant, it needs that suffix of gate. And so let me give you a few examples of other scandals that have been blessed with this suffix. There was Iran-gate, the Iran-Contra affair during the Reagan administration. There was Bridge-gate, the closure of lanes near Fort Lee, New Jersey for political payback by the staff of Governor Chris Christie. This week, NFL started, so there was the Bounty Gate, which was the financial rewarding of players on the New Orleans Saints for intentionally targeting and trying to injure players. And of course, who could forget the, the greatest gate of them all, which is Deflate Gate. <laughs> that wicked moment in NFL history when the <laughs> New England Patriots stole the 2015 AFC Championship from the Indianapolis Colts by deflating footballs. They stole it from us. It's <laughs> deflate gate. I could give you others. Travel gate, Lochte gate, Trooper gate. They're, they're all, all over the news over the years. The fact, remain, the fact remains this. Scandals are everywhere. They're highly public. And then, along with the scandal, there are usually lessons that emerge out of those moments of controversy. For instance, who knew what and when did they know it? Or the cover-up is worse than the crime. Or the adage, New England always cheats. <laughs> so, scandals are shocking, but here's the thing. They're also telling. They're shocking, and they're telling. They have a story, and they have a message. And that's why we're studying the book of Hosea. From now until our mission spotlight that we call Reach, the next seven weeks we're gonna dive into this Old Testament book. It's the story, the scandalous story, and the judgment that God delivers to Israel. The scandalous story is of a man named Hosea who marries a woman named Gomer, who is unfaithful to him. And actually, that's a pretty whitewashed way to say it. It's a story of a man named Hosea and a wife who becomes a prostitute. And God uses this enacted prophecy. It's not just prophecy that he's delivering a message to God's people, but it's, it's, it's an enacted prophecy in order to help Israel understand the grief that he feels in regards to their relationship with him. So Hosea is a glorious, and it's also a gritty book. And that's why we're calling this series Scandalous Grace. So I'm gonna give you some background in just a moment, but let me begin by just answering the question, why would we study the book of Hosea? Four reasons. Number one, Hosea helps us to remember the beauty of God's grace by feeling the scandal of it. 
Hosea aims to hit not just your head and understand things. Hosea aims to help you to feel certain things about the beauty and the scandal of God's grace. Secondly, many believers are unfortunately quite unfamiliar with the book of Hosea. For that matter, they're familiar with, unfamiliar with the minor prophets. The minor prophets are the prophets from Hosea all the way through Malachi. They're called minor, not because they're um, like the JV team of the prophets, but instead they're minor because their chapters are smaller as opposed to Isaiah or Jeremiah. So we have these minor prophets, and candidly, you're probably going to meet Hosea in the new heavens and the new earth. And if he asks you where you went to church, I don't want to be embarrassed that you're going, oh, Jose, didn't you write something in the Bible? I want you to know who he is. Number three, Hosea addresses the painful problem, and yet the common problem that we all share was spiritual adultery. This issue did not end when the prophets went off the scene. And we need to carefully consider, deeply consider, the similarities between Israel's culture and our own. And fourth, the fourth reason is because there are glorious foreshadows of the gospel in this book. In fact, you're even going to see it this morning. You hopefully already heard it as we heard the reading of Hosea chapter 1. We can read Hosea through the lens of the New Testament and in so doing renew our love for God's, frankly, scandalous work of grace in our lives if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that this book Think of this, an Old Testament book written in the eighth century, my hope would be it will help you to see why the cross is so significant and special that you might even come to believe in Jesus. I hope you'll stick with us all the way through this series as we unfold the beauty, trauma, the grittiness, and the glory of the gospel in this book. Hosea makes you read it and say things like, what? Whoa. Wow. Somebody asked me, is this sermon, what rated is this sermon going to be today? And I said, today it's PG. But if you read the Bible in chapter two, three, four, and five, it's PG 13 plus. The story is filled with images and with statements that are meant to deliver a powerful message. I also want you to know that as you enter into this book, It invites you and me to enter into the drama. For you to see this book is not just about Gomer, it's actually about you, it's actually about me. That rather than thinking of Hosea as Gomer-gate, it really is Mark-gate, Sarah-gate, Susan-gate, Paul-gate, it's you. It's the story of your life. I am Gomer in this story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, so are you. The theme for the book of Hosea is really the theme of every person who's experienced God's mercy. Here's the summary of chapter one, and it's this, that God gives grace to wayward people because he is God. This book is designed to platform that beautiful message to call us to repentance and faith and to facilitate the feelings of both the weight and the wonder of what it means that God has given grace to wayward people, and he does so because he's God, and that's it. So I wanna walk you through the story of the wayward people, how they're under judgment, and how they find grace. So three movements in today's message. First, wayward people. 
book of Hosea begins with the simple statement, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. This is a frequent way that the minor prophets opened their prophetic words. Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, they all start this way. And it indicates that what follows in the book is a message being delivered through a prophet to the people of God. And in effect, this book is written in order to win and to woo a people who are straying back to their relationship with God. And so it's meant to be sort of a wake-up call. It's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be scandalous. We know very little about Hosea, his life. We just have what we have here in this book that bears his name. Interestingly, though, his name, Hosea, the root of that word means helper. It means salvation, which, by the way, is the same root word from which other names are given in the Bible, including Joshua and including Jesus. We learn that his ministry took place during the days of particular kings. It says, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, these names mean little to us who live in 21st century American culture, but they would be like if I were to say to you, this story happened during the Nixon administration. There would be a, 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 a snapshot in your mind of what that season is like. Or this happened during the Korean War. Or this happened during World War I. Those markers become cultural indicators of what society was like. At the time when this prophecy was given, around the eighth century before the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel was divided into two nations. Because of God's judgment, the people of God, the Israelites, were divided into two nations. To the north was the nation of Israel, and to the south was the nation of Judah. In general, Judah was more faithful, and Israel was more rebellious. In fact, if you want to learn more about the background behind this book, you could read in 2 Kings chapters 15 through 20, or you could read 2 Chronicles 26 to 32. Judah, as I said, generally was more faithful, and Israel was generally in regular spiritual trouble. The four kings that are listed here in verse 1, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, were generally faithful kings. Ahab was more the exception. And then we have Israel, the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Israel. Israel was struggling. Jeroboam here is listed as the king. He reigned for 41 years. And his reign is what characterized this particular moment in Israel's history. He was a very successful king in some ways and terribly evil in others. The economy in Israel was booming. They expanded their borders. He fortified the capital city of Samaria. And yet, in the midst of all of this prosperity and all of this wealth, the nation was filled with injustice. They were filled with spiritual hypocrisy. And idolatry was rampant. Next Sunday, we'll talk about the problem of Baal or Baal and Ashtoreth and how the devil used the worship of those gods to get into the hearts of God's people. And you're going to see next week the comparisons between Baal and things in our own culture. The enemy has not changed his strategy. He's just changed the dressing on the window. Thirty years that followed after Jeroboam's reign were filled with political instability and one assassination after another. There were six kings in 30 years. 
And then in the midst of this, to the east, was the rising superpower of Assyria. There would be a time when Assyria would repent under the ministry of Jonah when he preached the gospel of repentance to the people of the city of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. But eventually, Assyria would invade Israel, and in 722 B.C., the entire nation of Israel, the northern tribes, were taken into exile, and then Assyria resettled the land with foreign people, thus giving rise to, in the New Testament, those called the Samaritans. Now, Hosea's ministry takes place in the years preceding that invasion by the nation of Assyria, and his primary message is to call the people of God back from the brink of their spiritual apostasy, that God's judgment is coming, and Hosea is serving as an early warning sign that this whirlwind of wrath is coming their direction, that God intends to be able to win them back, but if they don't repent, Judgment is not far off. If you were to look for an outline of the book, it would be broken down into these three sections. Part one would be Hosea's life in chapters one to three. In part two, we see Hosea's first warning, his prophetic warning, and in part three, we see his second warning in chapters 12 to 14. Now, look at verse two. Here we see the enacted prophecy, the way in which Hosea's marriage becomes an illustration. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Now, Hosea is not the only one who's, as a prophet, been given this task of this enacted prophecy. Jeremiah wore a yoke of oxen. Ezekiel slept on his side. Jeremiah took a a big pot and broke it in order for Judah and Israel to know that God was going to break them into pieces, but especially in regards to the nation of Judah And then Isaiah was given the instruction to walk and prophesy either naked or half naked. So this idea of enacted prophecy is not unusual, but the metaphor and the means by which God intends to awaken his people is designed to be scandalous. We find here that God says, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. It's not clear if Gomer was already a prostitute, or as I think, when he married her, she probably wasn't. And I'll give you a couple clues as to why I think that is the case. But then fell into unfaithfulness and then fell into prostitution. That's the worst kind of unfaithfulness, is it not? It's one thing, awful, to have a spouse who would be unfaithful. But can you imagine sitting across the table from a friend at Starbucks, a man, and you ask him how his marriage is and his eyes begin to well up and he says, it's awful. You expecting to hear of conflict, says, no, my wife's left me. The shock of what you feel in that moment. What, she's left you? And then as tears begin to run down his cheeks, he says, it's worse than that. She's on the street. She's a prostitute. The weight of that conversation is entirely different because of the shame, the horror, and the violation, and the degradation of what that means. Church, the the metaphor is designed to make you wince. As we'll see next week, Hosea was not only forced to deal with the unfaithfulness of his wife, 
But in chapter three, in order to get her back, he actually has to buy her back. Just think of that. A husband bidding on his own wife has to buy her back. And it's because of her unfaithfulness that he's shelling out money to rescue her. Hosea is going to take a wife of whoredom, but that's not all. He's going to also, she's gonna bear children. So while he's trying to bring her back, there are children who are being born, sweet children, little children who need a mother. And just think of what their mother's unfaithfulness did to their home. Think of the questions that Hosea received from his children. Think of the looks from the neighbors who knew. Think of the pain, the sorrow, the outrage. And then think of the underlying questions like, why would a married woman with children become so wayward? What in the world is she after? What does she want? It seems like she had have everything, and yet she goes to this level? How can, how can she do that? What's wrong with her? These are the questions that are underneath the book of Hosea, but friends, listen, these are the questions that are not just underneath Gomer's life. These are the questions underneath my life. These are the questions underneath your life. Because at the end of the day, anything that we do has a want that's broken behind it. And I'm sure at one level you've asked yourself this question, why do I do this and why do I want this? That's the fundamental question that every human being has to answer. And yet the horrid thing is you can't answer that on your own. You can't change what you want. The hope of the gospel, as we'll see in a moment, is that Jesus can actually come and change the very thing that you want. He buys you back from the slave market of your wrong desires. That's the beauty of God's grace. That's the scandal. So the scandal isn't just about Gomer. The scandal is about all of us. So the people of Israel were walking away from their God. Take your Bible and go to 2 Kings 17. Let me just give you a, a summary passage. And look at verses 14 to 18. Now, I know sometimes when I have you go to a passage, you might be inclined to sort of check out, and be like, okay, here's my mental break. I can check my weather, see how things are down in Florida, et cetera. So resist the urge to do that, okay? Stay in this text with me. Look, look at what it says in 2 Kings 17 and verse 14. This is in regards to Israel. This is why the Assyrians came. It says, but they would not listen, were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes, his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods or false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Ashereth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. They used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. This, this is how wayward Israel had become. And this is why God uses the metaphor of a marriage, and particularly the marriage of a man, to 
an unfaithful woman, why God uses the image of the marriage of a man to a prostitute in order to capture how God feels about his people's waywardness. The metaphor and the illustration is meant to elevate the emotion that you feel. It's as though God, through the book of Hosea and through this enacted prophecy, he's not just laying words on the people. No, he's laying his heart on the people. This text is meant to say, do you feel this? one thing to talk about a, a wayward vine or a wayward cattle, even a wayward son, but a wayward wife at this level? The waywardness of Gomer, like, like a piece of art, is meant to not only speak to your eyes, it's meant to go through your eyes and then land on your soul, or a piece of music that's meant to go through your ears and then land on your heart. God wants us to feel what he feels. So somewhere in your mind, remember this as we go through Hosea, because first, we need to ask the Lord to help us to feel our way through this text, not just to read it and study it, because too many of us could study a text like this and easily uncouple our hearts by using our minds and detaching them from the scandal that we're designed to feel in this passage. Secondly, as we walk through Hosea, you need to feel the outrageous nature of sin We need to see it the way that God sees it, that the people of God had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They had been given the promised land. They'd been given so many blessings, and yet what happened is that they began to worship the the creature. They began to worship the creation more than the creator, and this was spiritual adultery. And don't make the mistake of thinking that we don't do the same thing. And third, With all of the heaviness of Hosea, we ought to let our hearts just swell with gratitude because this sort of bondage is the very thing that Jesus came to save us from. In other words, Christ came to deliver us from the slave market of our wayward affections. He's the one who bought us back and bought us back with the price of his own blood. So we are the wayward people. As you read the book of Hosea, I hope you often say, I am Gomer. Now secondly, this people are under looming judgment. There is a danger that they face because God's judgment is coming. Verse four, the Lord says, Call his name Jezreel. He's saying this in reference to this son in verse three that was conceived and a son that was born to him. Now that phrase to him is important. It says she bore him a son. One of the reasons that I think perhaps Gomer falls into prostitution is that the next two children, that phrase, born to him, are not mentioned. And it may very well be, in fact, I think it is the case, that the other children were not the children of Hosea. So we find in verse four that the first son's name is Jezreel. Now this name has no baggage to you because there's no historical connection to it. But it might be if I told you of a man that I know who named his son Benedict Arnold or Nixon or if you said you met someone said hey here's my daughter what's her name her name's Vegas 
You'd be like, why did you do that? Or a really wild two-year-old boy with red hair that's flying all over the place. And yeah, we call him Armageddon, right? <laughs> you might be like, well, maybe that's what it's like, but you shouldn't name him that. That's just not right. Army, army, come here, right? You know, can you imagine? Armageddon, get over here. Like, what? That just, so the idea is this word has baggage connected to it, Jezreel. What is Jezreel? Jezreel was a, a valley well known as a place of bloodshed and battle. And so the verse says, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. I will break their bow or their trust in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, the clock is ticking, judgment is coming, and Armageddon is not far off. In verse six, we find that a daughter is born, and she conceived and bore a daughter. Notice not bore him, but bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. What an awful name for a little girl. No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So you get a sense here that God is outraged. And before that sort of turns you off in the wrong sort of way, you need to know that in order for God to be merciful, he has to be angry about sin. If God just simply said, oh, your sin's no big deal, he would cease to be God. What God does is he atones for our sin. God is angry. He's like, he's like a jealous husband. And what husband wouldn't be angry and hurt at the behavior of his wife like this? You see, the problem here is that the people have walked away from their God. In verse eight, it's equally devastating. It says, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived again and bore a son. And God and the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's an unbelievable statement. Because 17 times in the book of Exodus, God says, you are my people, you are my people, you are my people. Watch me as I redeem you out of the land of Egypt. God calls his, his people, his people, and he says to them, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And in this moment, he says, you're not my people. It's, though a husband, it's as though a husband would say to his wife who's in the middle of her prostitution, you're no longer my wife. I'm not your husband. You're not the same woman I married. What happened to you? You're not my wife anymore. This is what God feels. This is what is happening. God is separating himself from his people because of their sin. The covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai has been broken. The people of Israel, like Gomer, have played the harlot. And God says, I'm done. It's over. Now this would have not only been expected, but it would have been fully justified. If God would have walked away and never come back to Israel, it would have been no slight on his character. The covenant was broken. God should be done. And if the story ended there, it would not be in the least bit unfair. So before we get to the resolution of this tension, just let me ask you, is that how you see God's holiness? I fear that some of us see God only through such grace-filled eyes which God has grace-filled eyes, but sometimes we see God through such gracious eyes that we fail to see the weight and the problem of our rebellion. 
One of the things we'll see in Hosea is that it serves to, to elevate our awareness of the problem of our spiritual adultery. Now, I'm happy to tell you that the rest of the story doesn't end right here. The story continues, but the fact remains is that God is not obligated to save Israel. God isn't obligated to save you. He's not obligated to save me. It's a miracle that he saves anyone. Wayward people are under judgment, and they deserve it. And yet the beautiful thing is that wayward people find grace, but they only find it because God is God, not because of them. You may be here today and you're reaping the horrible consequences of some really bad decisions that you've made. And so as I'm going through the book of Hosea, you may feel the sort of weight and shame that's coming upon you. And I want you to know, I'm not going to leave you there. This book doesn't leave you there. God doesn't leave you there. But that first step of feeling the weight of what has happened is really good for your soul because it awakens you. In fact, you may be in church for the first time in a long time because you've so messed up all sorts of things in your life. You're like, you know what? Something is so messed up inside me. I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to go to church today. And that brokenness of your past has actually served to be the best guide that you've had in your life in a long, long time. Someday you may be able to look back on the mistakes that you've made, the people that you're around, the challenges that came about, and you may be able to thank God that those were in your life because they awakened you to the beauty of God's grace and to your need. So how does the story end? It ends with finding grace. I'm so glad God doesn't leave us here I'm so glad for the word yet in verse 10. So all of this is true. God is angry. He says, you're not going to be my people. I'm not going to be your God. And yet, verse 10, we find the word yet. Despite all the shame, despite all the pain of being rejected, despite the undeserving nature of God's love, he still chooses to go after them. Look what happens. It says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Now, if, if you've studied the Bible for a while, what does that sound like? That sounds like a covenant, doesn't it? Like an early covenant in the Bible. It's called the Abrahamic covenant, where God meets with Abraham, he chooses him, and he says, I'm gonna make of you a great nation, and then God, to solidify that covenant, splits pieces in two, and he walks in a ceremonial moment through the pieces of that blood trail with animals on the other side that in effect said, do this to me if I ever break this covenant, and God is the one who walks through the blood trail of the Abrahamic covenant, signifying that he's the covenant initiator, he's the covenant maker, and he's the covenant keeper. That the Abrahamic covenant depends fully on the sovereign purpose and the long-term faithfulness, not of Abraham or his people, but of God himself. And God comes back to the promise of God. In other words, God's faithfulness to his people does not ultimately depend upon them. Their only hope is, in fact, of God's faithfulness. They can throw themselves at the mercy of God, that, in effect, wayward people are only brought back because of God's faithfulness, not their own and if God seeks them, and if God pursues them, he can be gracious to them. Not because of their 
obedience, not because of their worthiness, but because he is God. You know why that's so hopeful? That means that at a very significant level, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God pursued you, and the only reason that you're here in this room today rejoicing over the things that we're talking about and singing the songs that we're singing about, the only reason that's there is because God sovereignly pursued you. He sought you, he bought you, it was dependent upon you, uh, depending on him, rather, not dependent upon you. God is the one who poured out grace on you. But that also means this, that if you have a loved one who's wandered away, a son, a daughter, a mom, a dad, a neighbor, and you're just like, how in the world they're pursuing all of the wrong things? You need to know that nobody, 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 and even a prostitute named Gomer who's in the slave market of her own bondage and rebellion is out of the reach of God. God can enter into the slave market and say, I want that one, and I'm going to pay the price. The price has already been paid to the blood of Jesus. And your friend, your neighbor, your son or daughter, or maybe even you, you can come back today because Christ paid for your deliverance. Notice what he says, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Isn't that interesting? In the same place where God said judgment, God says mercy. Is there any other place in the Bible where God did the same thing? At a place called Calvary, God poured judgment out on Christ and then poured mercy on you. In the same place where he forsook his own son is the place where he adopted those whose sins were covered in that sacrifice. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. The Bible calls this the divine exchange. Jesus becomes sin, so you could not be sin. Jesus takes our penalty, so you could be forgiven. God pours out judgment, and in the same place he pours judgment, it's the same place he pours out mercy. This is the essence of what the gospel means and what it does. And that's not all. Hosea envisions a day coming where, verse 11, the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Hosea envisions a day when Israel will be unified under the head who is Christ. So the people of Israel may be rebellious today, but God will one day rescue them. They may be exiled, but God will bring them back. They may be deceived, but God will one day open their eyes. The people of Israel may have a really, really bad and wicked heart, but one day God will change them. And do you know what the amazing thing about this story is? Hosea is just a foreshadow of the more amazing recollection of God's scandalous grace where it was most evident at the cross, where the sinless son of God dies for rebels, where the obedient king of Israel was executed for wayward people, where the omnipotent savior is crucified for the crimes of wayward people. That's your story, it's mine. Or as the hymn in the 1800s says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. I love this. From heaven he came and sought her. He sought you to be his only bride and with his blood he bought her and for her life he died. That's your story. That's mine if you're a follower of Jesus. 
Jesus did that for you. He is your Hosea and you are Gomer. No matter how far you ran, he ran after you. No matter what you've done, Jesus paid your debt. No matter what you did this week, Jesus has covered your sin. No matter how wayward your son or daughter or mom or dad or neighbor is, Jesus can buy them back. God gives grace to wayward people, and he does that because he's God. So this text then means that those who know Christ, their hearts ought to just leap in worship and say, that's my king, and thank God that he did that for me. And when your past is reminded of, when you're reminded of your past, that you can be reminded of, that's all true, I can't deny that. But what I do know is Jesus bought me out of that realm and put me into another. It means that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my hope and prayer is that maybe even today you would cross the line and say, I need to have my soul changed from the inside out and I need Christ to be able to be my savior and my king and regardless it means that God is on a mission and that mission is through Christ to apply the scandal of grace to people who didn't deserve it. My name is Mark Rogup and I am Gomer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your mercy and grace are so powerful and so life-transforming that not only do you receive the praise and the honor, but Lord, without you, none of this would be true. So apply your word and apply it now through the Lord's table as we enact our redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.